today's episode is a part of Minority Money Podcast, We Need to Talk series. This series gives your host an opportunity to pivot away from some of our usual topics to talk about more current events. The We Need to Talk series will give us an opportunity to discuss issues with other experts and talk about solutions to these issues. I hope you enjoy this installment of the new series. As always, please let us know what you think of this new segment of the show by either writing a review on Apple Podcasts or sending us an email. I present to you the We Need to Talk series. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. I am ready to have this conversation. Today, we are going to be joined by people that I like to call allies in the industry. And if you guys have not been listening to the We Need to Talk series, there's two other episodes that I would highly recommend that you jump into and listen to before you get to this third episode. But today, we are going to talk about allyship. And I am joined by Sonia Dreisler, Justin Costelli, and Jason Wayne. These friends of mine have been listening to the other shows that we've had and couldn't wait to get on so that we could have a real conversation about what allyship looks like, how we're going to get there, and things that just need to be heard from our allies. So without further ado, please, we'll let ladies go first. And Sonia, if you can give the listeners a little background of yourself, please. Sure. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. The very short version of my background in financial services and what I do now is about 15, well, maybe more than 15 years ago now. I started in financial services as an executive assistant, the CEO of a broker dealer and RA. She had a lot of faith in me, kind of threw me in the deep end. And even though I didn't know anything about financial services, like I didn't even know stock and equity were the same thing. Uh, and so I just learned on the job and she was really helpful to me and kind of taught me the ropes. and. I was turned out pretty good at systems and procedures. So I ended up reorganizing each department as I moved up the corporate ladder, spent five years as chief operating officer. And then when the CEO left unexpectedly, I threw my hat in the ring for the CEO role. And so then was CEO of the independent BD and RIA, where I had been hired 13 years prior as an executive assistant. That's a great career story. We sold that firm in 2016 to a larger BD RIA. And I took some time off and then started consulting to financial services firms on my subject matter expertise, which is socially responsible and impact investing and ESG and looking at it in a really pragmatic sense since I have the experience running a firm. And then sort of on the, not on the side, but as a sort of one of my other passions is talking about really frankly about race and gender in financial services. And so I end up doing that quite a bit as well last year, wrote about the gender part extensively in a series called Do Better. That may be how we got to know each other and because it went a bit viral and happy to continue to have those conversations and invite more people. Yes, we met before you started that series. No, I had written the series, but I hadn't published it yet. Okay, I was sitting on it at that point. But yes, I met you right before now that I think about it, right before that I decided to launch it. Rooftop in San Francisco. Great day. It was a great day. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. I mean, you have an extensive experience. That's awesome. I really like that. I really like, you know, hearing your story. Thank you for that. Justin, talk to us. Justin, talk to me. JC, talk to me. My story is not as exciting as Sonia's. So I've been a financial advisor for be 16 years later this year. Long story short, multiple stops along the way. 
launched my own RIA almost five years ago. It's RLS Wealth. I'm based out of Fishers, Indiana, which is just outside of Indianapolis. And last year, co-founded the AGC with my friend Taylor Schulte, which is a community for financial advisors, kind of focusing on growth. And we have some new efforts there that tie into some of our conversation today that We've decided as a community, we want to make a bigger impact on the profession and do more than just get better as being financial advisors and people. So kind of wear a couple of hats. I have my firm. I mentioned earlier before online, going through a rebrand with some new messaging, hired a new advisor, so have growth there. And then the community is a lot of fun and also spend some time helping other financial advisors develop their content strategy because I really believe in content marketing. You know, podcasts like this really help us deliver our message. Sometimes that message is, here's how we can help people. And other times, it's very important messages like we're going to talk about today. So helping advisors on that front. And I'm going to tell real quick the story of how I met Emlyn. So I met Emlyn at XY Planning Network's annual conference. It's either two or three Mm -hmm. years ago now in St. Louis. Desarte actually introduced us. He said, hey, I've got my friend Emlyn. He's going to be out there. You guys should connect. So we like chased each other down at the conference. I had you on my one question podcast, finally caught you. And then on the closing night, I'm not somebody who likes to go to the big parties and stay out. I planned on going to the closing party for 15, 20 minutes, head back, go work out and just kind of be antisocial and then ran into you. And then you and I and a couple other advisors, I can't remember his one name. He was in Carolina. He Mm -hmm. works with NFL football players. Mm -hmm. I saw the picture on one of the pictures floating around the last couple of days. We talked for the whole four hours of that and didn't move a spot and we shut it down and had no intention on doing that. So that was my introduction to Emlyn was XY. Yeah, that, was, that was a good night too. That was a great night. We shut the play. I remember that. I can't remember that guy's name either though. We were at the Children's Museum in St. Louis, which is supposed to be real cool. They have all these slides and they had it shut down for us. We didn't see anything other than that one little area by the buffet line that we just stood and held it up over there whole night. It was fun. Yeah, I did see it the next year because, you know, they did it back to back. So I did yeah. get to see it the following year for the first time, even though I'd been there twice. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, that was awesome. That was a great night. And that Mr. Wink, last but not least, Jason Wink. Talk to us, Jason. I'm just glad to get to go last. So I can just copy, you know, what Sonia and Justin said. A real honor to be included with these three to have this conversation with you. I've been really enjoying the series as a listener and kind of watcher. And so this is really something I think that's important. I'm glad to be part of it. As far as me, I'm probably the least known, I suspect, of the folks here. I've mostly flown under the radar, but I've been doing this a long time. So almost 20 years this year, this is like hard to believe. And I've been, you know, really most of that time in the RIA specific space. I started my first RIA in 2004, owned a number of RIA firms, built a, you know, a couple, to me, meaningful size businesses. And then my latest venture and kind of like really big passion has been tackling a lot of the challenging infrastructure of financial advice and kind of how it's gotten, in my opinion, you know, towards like only available to rich people, costs are too high. And a lot of that's because there's really kind of dated infrastructure, like just old legacy kind of systems. So I started a company called Altruist two years ago to really kind of digitize and make more efficient, you know, the tools that advisors have to use for their clients. And a big part of that work has been to make, you know, some of these inequities and many of those we're going to talk about today, you know, come back to hundreds of years of systemic racism. But all people who have struggled to get access to quality advice, you know, there's a real, I think, kind of grassroots movement in the financial advisor community. I think that all the people on this session are, are part of that, like to really make financial advice better, you know, going to like, Sonia's 
the hashtag do better. I mean, and she meant a whole lot of other things, but I mean, there's just so much room for improvement. So I spent most of my career just trying to do my part and have uh, grown close to Emlyn here recently. It's been a real pleasure kind of being a friend and someone who he's trusted to share his business goals with and kind of just collaborate and share ideas with. So that's my backstory. And again, just a real pleasure to be chatting with you all today. Nice. And drinks coming soon, Jason. When I get down to LA, we will meet. <laughs> so I wanted to jump right in and we know what the backdrop of our conversation is today. And we've had some more events happen. Like it's like it just keeps happening. And so we've talked to all the other guests about how they feel about it. But I think it's important for us to hear how it impacted you hearing all this stuff. So how have you guys felt about all the recent events? Like talk through some of those emotions that you've had and just share with the listeners. And whoever wants to start can jump right in. <laughs> I'll go first. We'll go reverse order, you know, and I'll just say that initial reaction was just shock. You know, I think that we all as humans have different ways of processing really emotional kind of traumatic events. And for me, you just have this like feeling of disbelief. And then, you know, and it wasn't just, I think, the George Floyd wake up call, like then it became just everything else. And it became really overwhelming, frankly, emotionally. And, you know, when you have friends that are people of color and all of a sudden, you know, you want to reach out and talk to all your friends, make sure like, hey, how are they doing? But honestly, it was just like for me, the initial reaction was shock, disgust, anger. Like, I think, you know, you know, there's this kind of typical range of emotions that you go through. And it really took me a couple of days to start trying to process, like, where do I fit into this and how can I be part of the change that's, you know, overdue? I want to say before I forget, you know, I want to thank Sonia, because this conversation, her and I had offline a year ago, probably. And I didn't get it. You know, I think like that was something that like, as these last few weeks have happened, I realized more and more like, I really wish I would have listened more closely to Sonia a year ago, because it's okay, you're listening (laughs) now. Sometimes it takes a really long time. And we'll get into that later. That's one of the things I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So that was my initial reaction. I would just say like, for anybody who's like me, it's like shocked disbelief, right? And then also you have these feelings of regret because you start realizing like you're part of the problem, a major (laughs) part of the problem. And you've maybe been oblivious, even though you could consider yourself a good human, you've been oblivious to like this real issue. So that was my next reaction. It was a horribly difficult week for me. And a lot of it was because I couldn't even fathom how difficult it was for Black people in America. And like, I just, the level of guilt in that was horrific, you know? So anyway, that's my two cents. I'd love to hear kind of how this impacted. My experience has a lot of similarities, but also some differences. I think that I had some of that same like sequence of events that you had, Jason, during first when Trayvon Martin was murdered. And like, I started to kind of like get it, the importance of, you know, like white people stepping up and doing something, but, and I started listening maybe a little bit more. I feel like it didn't really click for me until years later. It took many years of kind of this drip because the first so many years of my life, I had no, I was like totally oblivious because you don't learn about it in school. And like, anyway, for me, like Sandra Bland's, well, we don't know what happened with her because it happened in jail. But that for me was like the kind of light bulb moment where I had all the kind of the same things that are happening that you expressed right now, Jason, anger and like disbelief and how could this be? And since then, that was five, about five years ago. And since then, I don't know, I've seen it happen over and over and over. And maybe because I'm like more like connected in that community of activism, this has been happening for a long, long time. And I'm so right now, I would say 
I'm heartbroken. And I feel that my black friends are like more, I don't know if more, but like the overwhelm is more this time than last time, maybe partly because of everything else that's happened this year, everything else that's happened in the last, you know, five years, but it's more this time. And the outrage is more and seeing my friends just hurting so much is really hard. So I would say overwhelm and heartbreak are the two that I'm sitting with. And I would say I'm really sorry that, you know, somebody's death had to spark this, but I'm grateful that people are waking up and like there seems to be a national reckoning over this. And I'm glad that more people are talking about it. So it's a a wide mix of emotions. And I don't know, it's kind of, there's a lot. And I also feel like incredibly privileged all the time that this is something that I can think about. And then if I want to, I can step away from it, right? I I try not to. I try to stay in the discomfort and try to keep pushing in all, you know, everything I do and all the decisions I make. But when I get weary, I do have the option to like, stay inside or just be myself and like walk around and I can like take it off. Right. And I want to acknowledge that along with the other bigger, sadder, harder emotions, just to be honest and true. Yeah. And what you're saying makes sense. Cause I think about it and not to, you know, we still got to hear from Justin, but I mean, it's totally different experience for you guys than it is for me, obviously for obvious reason, but being able to know that you're going through those emotions lets me know that the human side, because just as easy as it's been for people to dehumanize black people, it's easy for us to like, well, they don't care. They don't, you know, so it's kind of, you know, to hear that you actually have sympathy, empathy, it's hurting you, it's bothering you. We need to hear that, you know, and, and so I think that thank you for sharing. And Justin? So I would same emotions as Sonia Jason. I think that that's not a surprise because I don't know how as a human being you couldn't feel that way. But for me, it wasn't with George Floyd. It was Ahmaud Arbery. That's the one where I finally, I don't want to say I had enough, but that was when I finally felt it was time for me to say something. I remember finally seeing that video a couple of days after, and I didn't mean to. I was scrolling through Twitter and it autoplayed and I bawled. I sat at this desk in the morning with everybody upstairs asleep and I bawled and I texted Tyrone and said, I actually don't remember what I said, but I just said like, I can't handle this. I'm bawling. I thought of immediately Roman and Leo being him. And then I thought about a little bit of guilt because I probably don't have to worry about that because they're little white boys. So I wrote a blog post. First time I've ever been outwardly, like I'm not a very political person and I don't consider this politics. I know there are politics that play into all this, but I think this is a human issue first and then we can get to the politics of it. But it's the first time I've ever publicly on any piece of content stated what my opinion was on something that could be controversial. And for so much of my life, I've always been the type of person who is a mediator. I see both sides of a lot of arguments, with the exceptions of like the obviously bad things. But most arguments, I can see both sides. I try to be the peacemaker. And I just, you know, I wrote about what my feelings were and how I felt and I put it out there. And once I did that, it was like it gave me permission to take more of a stance and be more vocal and say more. And then it became a part where I felt like now I have a responsibility to do so. The other emotion that I felt that hasn't been messaged yet or mentioned yet is frustration. I find it extremely frustrating when I hear people who want to deny that there is a difference in the way that black people are treated versus white people. 
And I have my theories as to why some of that may be. Some of it is just straight up bigotry and you're never going to convince them. I think there is a certain population, and this is not excuse it, but I think there are certain people who have so much guilt that they don't want to admit that they were a part of it. So they try to find a way that this is not the way it could be. Meaning that these are the excuses of, well, my favorite athlete is insert black athlete's name here. I think that they want to say that that's not true because they're not willingly knowing it and they don't want to admit that maybe they benefited from this privilege that they don't think exists. And it just frustrates me that they can't take a step back and just be willing to listen and learn. And if you look at all the emotion and the anger that is across the world right now, that is not like one or two people or small groups. This is a collective group of people, you know, black people across the globe are all experiencing this. And you can't say that this is something that a few people are making up. It's the experience that you all are receiving through life that is causing these emotions. That's not something that's made up. That is something that's there. And it frustrates me for people to not even be willing to admit that it's there to learn more. So frustration is the other. And then other emotions just kind of maybe a different type of frustration of not knowing exactly what to do, how to help. And I think that I like having answers. So I want to know this is what I need to do. And that hasn't been shown yet. It hasn't made itself aware to me yet. So it's still feeling my way through. How do I help move things forward and make a positive impact and help right the wrong that's out there? Mm -hmm. That's what we're you know, definitely going to get into today. And thank you for sharing that again. And I want to give you like I heard you talk about, you know, Ahmaud Avery and I heard Sonia say Sandra Bland. And then I think about, you know, and I have to give you guys my background now because I don't even know if I've shared this on any of the other episodes. But just let me give you a picture of what it looks like for a black man or a black person, black family. So my grandfather born in Alabama in 1926. My grandmother was born in Arkansas in 1932. Understand this, that before my grandfather was older than I am now before civil rights started, my grandfather showed me pictures from his high school that had coloreds only that rode the bus. They lived through Jim Crow people, you know, burning crosses in the front yard of, you know, my grandfather growing up, my grandmother having a distinct fear of me ever dating a white woman because of what she's seen have happened you know, to black men that dated white women when they were kids. So that's just the beginning of it. And then we go back through history and we see that every time, this is not something new, we've had over a hundred years of documented police brutality. We'll just go back to the sixties and talk about 1964 when Emmett Till was murdered. And this was the first impact that you see when we start having riots, because riots is not something new. This is kind of a pattern. A uh, black person is killed. It gets made public. Emmett Till was brutally beaten. And his mom decided to have an open casket because she wanted everyone to see what the police had done to him. This is, you know, think about the strength that she had to have, you know, give me the strength that Emmett Till's mom said had that I need to do this. That incited the civil rights movement. We have Rodney King. We have the seventies where the war on drugs happened and the war on drugs was targeted towards black people. And so now we have that going on. And then we have the Just Say No campaign, which Ronald Reagan's wife started. And now we see the mass incarceration that happens to black people. And so now we have every time something happens, there's a change. And then we have to adapt to the new things that have been given to us as a result of other people telling us what we need to do. So we have, you know, Democrats and Republicans alike. The war on drugs was started by Republicans, finished up by the Democrats, which ultimately led to three strikes. And then the mass incarceration and all those things that happen outside of just the police brutality. And then you have years of that. 
And so for black people, it didn't start at, and, and, and this is no indictment on you. So I'm not saying that I'm just giving you a little background and why there's so much emotion behind this. Because for us, it started, you know, I'm hearing these stories when I was a child. So when I'm your kid's age, Justin, when I'm a little boy like that, I'm already getting these stories. I'm already hearing about Emmett Till. I'm not getting it from school. I'm getting it from my parents. I'm not hearing about, you know, this stuff from school per se. I'm learning what's going on and how to conduct myself around police officers at the age of 11 years old, 12 years old. Like, don't do anything wrong. And so when you have all that kind of background and then this stuff happens, you can see why it's like, here we go again. This is not something that we haven't seen before. We've seen it in the 60s. We've seen it in the 70s. We've seen it in the 80s. We've seen it in the 90s. We've seen it all through the 2000s. Now we're seeing it again. And I think for people that are saying some of the things that you're saying, Justin, or people that you've been in rooms with, any of you, if they don't acknowledge the fact that this has been going on for over 100 years, they can't show up at the Ahmad Aberry and have like, oh, yeah, this is where I need to. And I'm just using that as a reference or Sandra Blonde or any of the people that have passed away because prior to her, there's still 100 years of that kind of stuff going on. So that I just wanted to get that out. And then, and then for people that we're trying to reach, why is it so important for them to listen right now? So why would you say it's important for people to listen right now? <laughs> well, listening is actually the number one thing I think people can do right now. You can't really work towards solutions if you don't understand, you know, what is going on, right? The depth, breadth of the problems. And so just like listening to everything you just said and in your perspective, like letting it sink in and listen without being defensive and realizing that for most of us, I'm just going to use myself as an example. This is not something that I learned in school. Like I didn't learn about Emmett Till in school. My history class in school we talked about Christopher Columbus, right? We talked about the missions because of, we're in California and how important the missions were, but we never talked about who lived on the land before the missions or like how the country was built. We didn't really talk about slavery except for that Abraham Lincoln was the superhero, right? And so I think as adults, I mean, hopefully kids' education is a little bit better now, but as adults, it's up to us to expand on the education that we missed and not just history, but also what's happening right now and listening to the voices and the stories of the people who are most impacted and listening and believing, even though it doesn't match up with our lived experience, right? Like last time, I actually haven't been pulled over by police many times. The last time they pulled me over, they're like, do you know why we pulled you over? I said, no. I said, well, your lights aren't on, you're driving in the dark and with no lights on. It was a rental car. And I didn't realize I had only turned like the little lights on. And I was like, oh no, I didn't know that. And then I said, sorry, it's a rental car. He's like, oh, well, let me help you find them. And like fully proceeds to help me fix the car. And like, that is my experience. I was not scared. Like not only did I not get a ticket, nothing. He helped me, which is how an interaction with a police officer should be, right? They're there to protect and serve. And, you know, saw something wrong, helped me fix it. And I was on my way. That's what it should be, right? And so like our experiences, like how we walk through the world have been so different that sometimes I think when we listen, we listen and and judge and compare and we need to just listen, just listen. And for me, it took many, many years of listening to be able to like confidently speak out about this. And I kind of wish I had spoken out earlier and just kind of stumbled through because I have some regrets about being silent. 
in places when I knew I shouldn't have been, but it took a lot of listening. And uh, now I feel pretty confident about speaking up and where my place is and how I can use my platform and my choices that I make. Thank you for saying that. Like just the experience that you've had, <laughs> I've never had an experience like <laughs> I don't unless I knew the cop, unless I knew the cop here in town, like in Madeira, like where I live at, like I know the cops and like, you know, they know me, they pull me over and I'm usually like, oh man, what do you know? We talk about nonsense. But if I leave this town, it's not the same. And we've shared that. And when we say this, like every time I hear someone say we need to listen, I'm always reminded of Stephen Covey. He says, listen to understand. And that's so powerful. Like there's nothing more, like we have to do that right now. And I think it's on both sides because we have to hear your experience and how it is. And then you hear my experience and it's like, damn, since you were 11, since you were a kid, yeah, it's always been like that. Like I can't take this skin off. Like it's on me. But I want to get back to that why it's so important to listen and, you know, Justin or Jason, whoever wants to feel that question. I think it's because the lesson that needs to be learned is to experience. And there's no way for me to go out and recreate what you've had to live through, the stories you've been told, the obstacles you've had to overcome. So the only way for me to maybe be able to somewhat understand and at least be able to empathize is to listen to you and take that in and process it. And the more we listen and the more stories we hear, I think that's how people's eyes become open and be able to have an opportunity to change the way they view life. Like we can read books and things and books are great. But when you sit back and listen to a conversation like this, or you listen to your first episode, I haven't had a chance to listen to the one with all the women, but um, I listened to Tyrone and Samuel and Desarte. You listen to that and you can hear the frustration. You can hear that at one point, it sounds like Samuel has almost given up. Like you can hear that and you can pick up on that emotion. And to me, that carries so much weight. And I think the only way to be able to understand, to be able to a point to see where you can fix what you're doing and how you can contribute is to listen. I haven't shared my story because I feel like it's a white guy trying to steal what's going on and make it about him. But when I grew up, we moved into apartment complex and we were the minority. And as I was thinking about this podcast and thinking about my life experiences, one thing I realized is where we were in our apartment complex was kind of where all the white people were. But in my apartment complex, playing basketball, I was the only white guy on the court. So I have been surrounded by black men and guys my whole life. And to me, like I just have naturally grown up with that. So I feel comfortable. I think you know, we hear about white people being scared of black people. Like to me, I don't understand that. And I don't know where that comes from because every black person I've met has been just as friendly as the white people I've been around. So my experience doesn't give me this side that some white people have of that fear. But I have an experience that it was my senior year of high school and it was New Year's Eve. Me and my friends went around to some house parties and whatnot. We went back to my friend's house and to stay the night. He happened to be black. We're all in the basement sleeping two o'clock. We're getting ready to go to bed two in the morning, quiet. His mom is upstairs and down come police officers, guns drawn. I had a gun in my face. And they tell us this story that someone had been robbed and the suspect's car was there. And it was purely to mess with us because they knew it was a black family. And they assumed, I'm sure it was all black kids there. And they come down and they breathalyze everybody. They run us through the story. And then they end up telling his mom and my parents and another parent different stories about who was robbed. So it's completely BS. And I was reminiscing back on that when I was talking to all my friends that was there. And he said, can you imagine what would have happened if you white guys weren't there? Until this day, 
20 years later, I never even thought about would the outcome have been any different? There was no police report filed. They let some of the kids there that had been drinking throughout the night drive home after registering on the breathalyzer test, let them drive home. Like it was purely to mess with and scare these kids. As I look at it now, I'm sure that the outcome would have been different if some of those white guys weren't there. But I look at that and growing up, it didn't really register with me. Like I knew why the cops targeted the house, but I didn't think about how many other times that had happened to my friends. And at the time, none of my black friends ever confided in me that they had all these experiences. So I knew that racism existed. I'd seen some things, I'd heard things, but never growing up to the extent of really understanding what a black man has to go through growing up in America. And I was surrounded by it. So that just shows you the privilege that I still had even being not surrounded by, but being more exposed to it than other people. I still was oblivious to it because it really, with the exception of that one event, it never really impacted my life. I think the interaction, like most athletes, especially if you're playing certain sports, you're going to have more interactions with black guys. The reason why I think that there's been, you know, there's a lot of people that may have some type of fear towards being around black people is because we are overrepresented in the news as criminals. Not only that, one of the things that really opened my eyes over the last couple of years was a conversation that Tyrone and I had at Inside ETFs two years ago. And we actually did a video about it. And we're watching this presentation and part of the presentation is talking about all the good that can be done with lower fees. And they're going through, you know, the traditional things, retirement and college funding. And you see the white people. And I identified that, that there was not enough color on the screen representing different people. But then you get to, well, with these lower fees, as a, a company, we can spend more money helping cure illnesses. And they cite malaria and they show a couple of young black kids in Africa. And to me, that wasn't like, I didn't think anything of it because, okay, that's where malaria happens to be. That's normal. But what Tyrone opened my eyes to was, so back to the representation in the movies, when you grow up seeing nothing but images of sick and poor always being the black individuals, that's what you think you're destined to be. And that was a moment where I felt sick to my stomach because that didn't even register. I picked up on the obvious. Why weren't there any black families retiring or black families celebrating a marriage over my head? I didn't even think about the fact that you're constantly as a black individual shown poverty or being arrested or being in trouble through whether it be movies or even just simple images in a PowerPoint presentation at an investment conference. And that really sunk in that there are so many other things beyond the obvious, just the subtle hints that can weigh on people that really takes away their hope, takes away their aspirations to do more because they don't think that can be them because they don't see it, which is why it excites me so much to see you and Desarte and Samuel and Tyrone and Brianca and Lazetta and everybody in the community doing all these great things because now all of the black little boys and girls can see you all in spotlights. And that's why I want to be an ally. Because one of the things I can do is I can help share what you guys are doing, bring you on my podcast, bring you on my small little platform that I have. Like That excites me to see all of you progressing things forward because I know what that is going to trickle down because it's giving a different image for younger black individuals to see. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head with the overrepresentation of poor, hurt, sick black people. The US population only has 13% of the US population is black. 40% of the population that's in prison is black. And when you see the news, you'd think that they don't arrest anybody else <laughs> but black people when it's not really what it is. And I think that, you know, some of those images that you're talking about is just kind of like, I don't even know if the person that's putting it together thought that through. It's just what we have been and what we have seen 
for years, for hundreds of years of this country. And it's always been that way. And so I think just the fact that you've listened to Tyrone and then kind of look back at it. And I think the same thing's happened to my wife because my wife's Mexican and, you know, we would talk and she'd say, you know, she'd almost kind of come across like, you know, not say that we were complaining because she never said that, but she's like, it's always like something going on, you know? And I was like, well, look, listen to what I'm saying. I still kind of went through some stories that I had and this and that. She's like, that happened to you? And I think it's those conversations when you say that happened to Desarte, that happened to you, Tyrone? But I know you. I know you're a good guy. I know you're not a thug. You know, I know you're an educated man. I know that you're out there doing what you have to do. But the people that don't get, and I'll use a word that he likes to use, proximate, never understand what it's like. Or you're looking at the news and you're sitting here saying like, no, I can count on my hand how many black advisors I know are black people that are doing well. But you wouldn't get to see that from some of the images you see on TV all the time. But Jason, what are your thoughts on this? I would kind of harken back to something that Sonia said. It actually resonated a lot with me, which is since the question was about listening, you know, it's like, just listen. Because I think, you know, for, I don't know, the better part of my life, like if I would hear something, I would immediately want to fix the problem. Or I think it's not uncommon to think that empathy is like sharing a story to like be relatable. But the reality is like, as a white person, we have zero ability to relate to some of the things, most of the things that have happened to black people. So it takes a little while to learn, like it's okay to just listen and increase the level of education you have. The one time I do think it makes sense to speak up is when, you know, you get an ignorant white person making really stupid comments. And that's happening a lot. It always happens. You know, it's been happening all of our lives and before we were all born. And it's a real shame that it's still going on. I saw today I know none of us are here to be political necessarily, but I, I couldn't believe it. Like a big name person, I was not going to say their name because I just don't think that's the goal here. They actually shared a, a statistic about what you just shared with, you know, the prison statistics. They said, well, look, the problem is that black people need to quit committing so many crimes. They're blah, 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 so many percentage of all the crimes. And, you know, it's like, this is the dumbest thing that you could ever say. So to me, it's like, listen, listen, listen. You catch somebody that's just, you know, spewing complete ignorance, especially a white person of power and influence, like, I do think that we're obligated to put ourselves out there and say something and do what's right. But for me, you know, I have a lot of listening and learning to do, a lot of books to still read. I realize it's going to take a lifetime, I think, type of a commitment. And, you know, a little lesson, I think, for me, and this just kind of goes to our personalities of how we all take action. And I think that there's beautiful micro actions happening every day right now, you know, people who are making these micro actions. And I think there's these really important macro actions that we have to think about and we have to talk about and we have to organize. And I think, you know, those big macro plans require a lot of listening. You know, they require a lot of knowledge and a lot of people really thinking hard about how they can keep this momentum. I was on another kind of meeting that I heard just, you know, mention, you know, I don't know if it was a fear that he has, but I think it's a fear I certainly have. But it's about, you know, these moments of awareness fading away. You know, and I think like that listening is so important because it's what allow us to put together these macro plans, these things that will take years, decades, you know, to really effectuate the kind of change I think that we all realize is overdue. And but if we don't take the time to actually, you know, really arm ourselves with knowledge and compassion. And as deep an understanding as we can seek to have, like it's going to be really challenging to have that macro vision become reality. That's kind of, again, you know, as it relates to listening and where I'm at, a, a huge amount of education that I really need. Can I add on to what Jason said? Absolutely. Great. 
Thank you, Jason, for what you said, because one of the things I've seen recently is a number of people have contacted me because I've been outspoken about racial justice for years. So they're like, oh, like, I want to talk about this now. And I'm like, okay, great. This is so good. Let's like harness this energy. But first you need to do a lot of listening before you start like telling everybody what the solutions are. I'm talking about white folk here. Mm -hmm. People have sent me proposals actually to review for them for these big plans they have, which is great. And I'm so excited for their energy. And people of color primarily have been doing this work for years and years and years. So we don't get to just come in and be like superhero. We're going to fix it. We realize there's racism and we're ready to erase it now. Like it's time for once we have that like aha moment, we need to listen, find out who is doing this work. And especially if it's women of color who have been oppressed from like so many different degrees, we need to go find what they're doing and back them up because they're the ones who are most affected. They know what the solution, the best solutions will be. And we need to give them our energy instead of coming in and being like, well, I realize there's racism. Here's how we're going to fix it, which is like, I love the energy. I love the like looking for solutions, but we need to, when I say we, I mean like us white people need to do more listening and not just doing what we think is right, but listening to the folks who are most impacted by whatever issue we're trying to solve and lending our voice, our platform, our money, our energy to work that already has, like there's already ideas happening So I think that's the other piece of listening is not always jumping right in with the solution because what can end up happening is you erase the hard work or unknowingly co-op the hard work of Mm -hmm. people who've been doing this work for a long time. I think definitely collaboration has to happen. There's going to have to be collaboration on many levels for this to really be able to work. And I think even on the smaller level, like we got the macro level that we talk about, even on the micro level, like reaching out to other advisors, I will say this about one of my friends that has reached out to me. We've talked more here recently than we normally talk, which is totally fine with me. But Meg Bartell had reached out to me. Said We talk all the time now. Like we've talked and she's been sharing all of the podcasts. And so shout out to you, first of all, Meg, just for being a great friend. But what I wanted to say is like what she has been sharing with me and what she's been finding out and what she's been seeing. it's, It's just been awesome to watch her learn more about us. And not necessarily, you know, asking questions or just really like kind of sitting back and letting all this stuff sink in and saying, man, this has been going on for a long time. And I I really appreciate that. And I think those things make me feel more understood. Those things make me feel more apt to share my story because I can say, okay, well, when I'm sharing my story, someone's listening and they're taking in what I'm saying. And so important what you're bringing up there, Sonia, because I think that it's about the listening. And then I think we got to move to collaboration. I wanted to talk about one thing before we got to the next topic and talking about mistakes that you have made. And I know this is going to be something that it's going to be hard to talk about, I think, but I think we're talking about it in the spirit of trying to get better and then making sure that other people that want to be allies don't make some of the mistakes that are easily made and unintentional mistakes. But if you guys wouldn't mind, you know, sharing something about mistakes that you've made from not really fully understanding and if you feel comfortable sharing that. Absolutely. I know I offered this, so I'll volunteer. <laughs> and I think that this, so I'll, I have some like actual mistakes I can point to, including one just last mm-hmm. week. But I think probably the mistake that I regret the most is the things that I haven't said. It's not something that I've done. It's things that I haven't said. Times when I've sat silent, when, you know, a friend has said something that is 
maybe unintentionally or maybe intentionally like dismissive or racist or overlooking something. And I just was like, oh, I don't really want to, I don't have the energy to take this on right now. Or before I was like understanding the issues, like how important my voice was. So I think those are the mistakes that I regret the most, the staying silent mistakes. Also, when I was like, as I've been learning in the beginning of my learning, I don't think I really heard my Black friends very well. And so I tell this story, I've told this story a lot, but like, I really got it from like the importance of racial justice and my role. I got it from hearing over and over from a white woman. And like at the same time, my Black friends were saying the same kinds of things and I wasn't really hearing it from them. And so it took me a long time to get it. And it had to come from somebody who looks like me, which is unfortunate, but also kind of true. Like that's just kind of how we process. And so I want to be that like white person for other white people. But in terms of like a real mistake that like I made last week that I can kind of own up to is one of my newsletter readers wrote me a note because I wrote a piece called financial services has a racism problem. I wrote it at the end of May. He wrote back to me, thanking me for my voice and for speaking out. And he, you know, worries about not saying like he's worried about speaking out. And this gave him some like maybe more courage. I can't remember the words that he used. And I was like, really honored. He said that. And I wrote back and I encouraged him and said how much we needed his voice in this. And, you know, I hope that he takes that feeling and really speaks out when he sees injustice, blah, blah, blah. Trying to like encourage him, right? Mm -hmm. Later, the same person commented on LinkedIn. And I realized it was a black person. And I was like, oh my God, I thought I was talking to a white person. Mm -hmm. My intention was good. My intention was to get a white person to like be more active and be a better ally. But what I did was like tell a black person how to talk about racism. I'm like, I'm such an idiot. I was so embarrassed. I was like, what, how, what do I do? And I know, I know what to do because I've been doing this work for long enough is that you apologize for not your intention. You apologize for the impact it had, right? And so I did. I wrote him a like short to the point note, not making it about me or how embarrassed and dumb I was, but apologizing. And what happened was we had a really nice dialogue afterwards. He like heard me. He was very kind and thoughtful and like very, I don't know. We had a really good conversation afterwards. And so the ability to apologize was really helpful here. But like that stuff happens to me all the time, like a stupid assumption with good intent. And I think that's one of the issues that is can be a stumbling block to like, if you have good intent, but it doesn't land well, it's really important what the impact was and owning that. I don't know if I'm being very, oh, like, this is good. What I, I like here. it. This is really good. Okay. I think yeah. you're painting a real picture of stuff that can happen in a regular day. And then you look back like, oh man, I need to fix this. And you yeah. owned up to it, you fixed it. And then even more importantly to me, I think the person that you were talking to was able to say, you know, that's okay. We can talk through this and we can make it happen. I think it shows maturity on both sides. And that's the kind of collaboration we need because I think it's those, like we talked about, it's the micro thing. It's the micro things like that, that are going to lead to you being able to have a better conversation with someone else next time, him being able to know how to communicate with someone else next time. And, you know, now we've kind of taken that one misstep, won't call it a mistake, just a misstep, and corrected it, and it's going to be better going forward. Jason. Let me add one more because I think it's oh, really okay. important good, good. and is probably uh, not unique mm-hmm. to me is that once I finally did, once the mm-hmm. light bulb like went off for me, I started asking a ton of questions that I could have Googled or I could have done my reading 
But I started asking them to my black friends and like mm-hmm. really putting the emotional labor of educating me mm-hmm. onto them mm-hmm. when they did not volunteer to do this. Like mm-hmm. it's not their responsibility. <laughs> like sometimes like you're having this podcast right now and like you're bringing this conversation up, Emlyn, and I'm grateful. And I'm, I'm glad you're using your platform and you're choosing to do that. That doesn't mean that every black person wants to educate me about mm-hmm. how like all the things that I haven't learned in my 40 years of life. And so I did that quite a bit. And now in retrospect, I can see that. And also in with retrospect, I've been able to go back and apologize for just not realizing that I was really kind of imposing and asking a lot of somebody wasn't their business to educate me. So I think that happens probably more frequently than you would think. So I hear. <laughs> and what I would say to anybody that's trying to figure something out, I know Netflix has a great little segment on just there, there's a whole little thing called Black Lives Matter, and it's all movies about different things that Black people have been through. One of them that I'd highly recommend, we'll put a link to this in the show notes and talk about it a little bit, is 13th. And it talks about the 13th Amendment. And it gives you a lot of backstory on what's going on and how we got to this point from slavery all the way till now. It's a great documentary. I highly recommend it to everyone, not just allies or not just white people, everyone. I think everyone should watch it. I watched it with my kids and they're sitting there like, oh my, this is real. I was like, yeah, this is really happened. They're like, this is not, I was like, no, this is really going on. This is really stuff that happened. It's really eye opening and hard to watch, honestly. Like as you're sitting here and you're watching like some of the world leaders, some of the presidents that say some of the things they say, you're like, this was a president that was sitting in office and this is the people that were advising him. This is the kind of advice they gave him. It's just totally. And so I think it will open up your eyes a lot. But with that, Jason, we got to hear from you. Jason, what's going on? Talk to us. What mistakes would you feel that you made from not really fully understanding? I mean, shoot, we could talk for like a full hour about mistakes or longer, frankly. But I'll just give a few like from my perspective. And I think one is a super easy thing that is very, very normal for all humans to do is be defensive. Don't be defensive. Like, you know, if you're, again, a white person and you hear what happened to someone else, like, don't, like, get defensive, you know, like, just listen, you know. So I think that's kind of the first thing as mistakes I've made over the years. Like Justin, I grew up in an area where when you were white, you were a minority. So I didn't grow up feeling, you know, like there was a huge difference. But, like, now that I look back in hindsight, I realize, like, um, just because I grew up without a lot of money, I grew up in an area that had a, that was very diverse. The reality is I give myself way too much credit for getting myself out of that situation when like my color probably helped a lot. And I think like a common mistake is to like give ourselves too much credit, you know, in that case, defensive, you know, sort of defensiveness, but I think some white people. So like, you know, I think, again, being far more humble, you know, and realizing, you know, again, it's not about us. And I think there's been a lot of like the lives matter kind of stuff. And I'm like, you know, it's really, truly sad. I don't know that all those people are bad people, right? But like, Mm -hmm. they still just don't quite get it. And so I think like, again, as a white person, like you have to really understand that at this moment, this is about black lives, not white lives. And, you know, making sure that you correct your, especially white friends that try to use this all lives matter, you know, context, which is just really not appropriate right now. And I think one of the most important things, frankly, that we can do, you know, for me, I will say, you know, again, I have an unusual platform and that I'm the CEO of a venture-backed company with substantial institutional investors. A lot of people in my position, which there are many others in our industry, have went radio silent in all of this. I don't know if they're afraid to piss off their investors, the GPs and the funds that invested in them, if they're afraid they're going to piss off some customers. But I'd say like, you know, one mistake that I feel like people will look back and it will be a huge mistake they make if they don't stand up for what they believe in. And really, you know, 
try to not care about that stuff. Like it does not matter, right? Like if you make a statement of kind of where, you, and you, if your actions back it up too, and it pisses off some people, like good riddance, you know? And I think that's a common mistake that a lot of, you know, again, I think sometimes even well-intentioned, well-meaning, you know, white people make, but they say nothing. And then by saying nothing to me says a lot more. So be fearless to do what's right. And again, although there's a lot of learning and listening, I think it's actually important for people to see other white people like declare, this is a problem. We're part of the problem. We have a lot to learn and we're committed to doing things better in the future because that'll inspire other people to step up and make their proclamation. And, and like, this is something that we really all need to work together on. And so I'm really hopeful that, you know, maybe this episode helps some people. I mean, I know there's been a number of people I admire greatly that have, you know, kind of put their stake in the ground on where they stand. And I just hope that more will follow. If you do care and you say nothing, I mean, that's, to me, I don't know if I could ever live that down in terms of like looking back at my, my legacy. So I could go on and on, but I'll leave it at that as far as the big mistakes that I've been making. I think it's very good. It's good to hear it. It's good to, I'm sure it felt good to say it. And I'm sure that there's people out there that are listening or that are going to listen that are going to say, yeah, you know what? Jason's right. Sonia's right. Justin's right. And that's all we want. And then we can move forward from there. Did, did you have any mistakes or anything you wanted to share on that? Justin, I think you've kind of said some stuff while you were going, so I don't, you don't necessarily need to take that one. I can't think of any explicit times where I didn't say something and didn't speak up, but I know there were many in my lifetime because that guy who rides in the middle, I don't like confrontation. So I would be, unless it was something horrible, I would let little sly comments go by and not correct somebody, not call them out. And I know that I won't do that. I have gotten to a point where I have the confidence where I will not be afraid to speak up and say something. So there aren't any, but I know I've missed opportunities there. What scares me the most are what are the things I don't even know I did that had a negative impact on somebody that I can't go back and apologize for because I don't know I did it. Just whether it being ignorance or naive or blind to what was going on, I'm sure there's some of those in my life that I wish I could go back and say something different or do something different. And I just didn't know. And then the other thing is, because I never really considered myself an ally, like I would have never have characterized myself as that before what's going on right now. But because I always have had black friends and have treated people the right way and technically been an ally, I think that I thought I've done enough and given myself not a pat on the back, but just that I haven't challenged myself to do more. And I think that's been a mistake that I wish I would have started being more vocal and doing things sooner rather than later. So I think that to people listening, especially to white people listening, if you find yourself in the camp where you are an ally and people know that and your actions back up what you say, like you truly are an ally, don't give yourself a pass that you're doing enough. Continue to find ways to have greater impact and do more and help more. You, like, you're never going to be such a great ally that you don't have to do more. So don't get comfortable keep on pushing to try to strive and do more and be more. So I think that there's probably been opportunities even over the last year that I missed pushing myself more to do more. And then that would be a mistake. So again, they're more vague. There are things mm -hmm. I know that are there that I can't fix. But I think the biggest one is just, you know, not being a better ally sooner, just feeling comfortable that, hey, I'm, I'm doing the right things. I'm treating people the right way but maybe being more intentional with some of the things I've done. Like I try to be intentional with who I reach out to and who I connect and who I meet with just so I'm meeting everybody around the profession. But you know, I look at my podcast that I've had. You know, I've had diversity in there, but it's not that great. Could I have done a better job finding somebody else to talk on a subject that's more general that was a black advisor or a woman advisor? So 
it's little things like that. I think I could have been more intentional earlier, which brings me to something I hope we get to is being intentional and doing it the right way. You know, I think about growing my firm or growing the AGC and what's the appropriate way. And this is not to put it on Emlyn to teach me, but Mm -hmm. like, this is what I'm trying to figure out. What's the right way to grow with intention to bring on advisors of color or different genders and doing it the right way so that it's genuine. Because the one way you could go, and I guess we're taking a tangent, but I'm going to go there now. You could say, hey, I want to hire a black advisor. And I think some people would say that's the appropriate way to state your intention out there. But I would worry, is that patronizing, that black advisor? Does that black advisor think that, oh, well, he only hired me because I'm black and now I'm the token black advisor? I don't know if it's messaging, if it's surrounding yourself and just being an ally that then people will trust to reach out to. But I look at, I had my first hire as an advisor. I didn't even publish that I was hiring because I wasn't trying to hire, but he's another white advisor. He sought me out and he pursued me and he wanted to work with me. Is there something that I'm doing that I don't know of again, that is discouraging a black advisor from reaching out to me or a woman advisor, not to take it away from being about black advisors, but just in general, Am I doing something with my messaging, who I am, how I present myself that prevents somebody who's not white from reaching out to express their desire to want to work with me? So how do we, you know, this is a conversation made for all four of us to kind of dialogue on. One of the ways is collaboration, not just collaborating from being friends and supporting each other, but collaborating from making our businesses, you know, grow in a more, I hate the term diverse, but more diverse way, more different way. How do we do that? How do we let people know that we really genuinely want to grow and support advisors, black advisors, and that we're not doing it just to be able to check a box. I think that the biggest thing that you can do is get immersed into someone else's culture. So once you get into someone's culture, it's not just about them being, you know, that person. It's the culture. It's like, it's little things like the type of food you eat, the type of clothes that you wear, the places that you go and understanding why people in this culture like these different things. I think that the culture of representation in firms has to change. It's going to come from mindfulness because you made a statement earlier when you're talking about not understanding, like seeing the advertisement that you see and not having, you know, the black people in there were hurting this and that. That's a mindful understanding of what's going on. So now when you go make your presentation, you be mindful not of have the, that. the images yeah. that you have and who's attached to those images. You may think, okay, that's not that big of a deal. But to the little kid or the person of color that's seeing that and says, oh, that person of color is successful. Don't think because, you know, Desarte, myself, Tyrone, Sam, you know, Lamar, all these different guys have gotten, you know, have our firms and doing this. Don't think that we don't still need to see people of color that are climbing the ladder, that are in presentations that are, you know, the imagery of what you do when you're doing your presentations and being mindful of how that looks to everyone. Obviously, we're talking about what's going on with Black people, but how it looks to women. And that, I think, takes a lot of time, consideration, thought, and working together and making sure that you can present those items to say or those different things that can tell a story about who you are, because I think that's what happens. And so it's easy for a white advisor to come reach out to you because you're white, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not saying that there is anything wrong with the white advisor having the white advisor work together. I mean, what's wrong with that? There is nothing wrong with that. But I want to make sure that we understand that it's about 
the culture we create. And I think we have a task to change the culture of the financial services industry. Like we have to change the culture to make it more acceptable to be representative of the people that we're trying to reach, the people that need the help. And that's where I think that if you're asking me what my opinion is, that's what I would say. I'd love to hear more about how we can move forward with this. And, you know, as all of you guys are sitting there, I'd, I'd love to hear from each of you just, you know, a couple thoughts on what you think we can do to move forward. We've told you what we think, and I'd love to hear, you know, maybe one idea from each of you as we kind of, you know, wrap up here because we've been going for, I know it doesn't feel like that long. We've been going for a good clip here. So we'll start with here. We just had you go, Justin. So we'll let you finish up some, well, I'll go right back to you and then we'll end with Sonia. What are some things that people that you think we could be doing to make this change? From profession, advisors trying to make the change or? We can do advisors. I mean, if you have more than just that, then share that too. I mean, let's talk about it. What do you think? I mean, if you want to go to the advisor place, we can do that. If you want to go outside of that, what you think, then we can do that too. But, you know, I'm, I'm, we're nimble. We can move. So I'll go high level and then I can go to the profession. So I think high level is, we've already talked about it before, but I just think empathy goes a long way. And it goes back to the listening and not being defensive, not offering up suggestions before you hear somebody and what they really want. You know, a lot of progress is going to happen because of conversations. And conversations require both sides, but it requires the side that needs to learn more to be quiet and listen and listen because you care. Again, I can't put myself in your shoes, Emlyn, but it would be extremely frustrating if I'm trying to tell somebody how I feel and they're shooting back with something right away. Like sometimes people just want to be heard. And the fact that you sit there and listen and don't offer anything and just absorb is very meaningful. And I think that progresses the conversation further along. If I'm trying to explain something to you and I feel that you're listening and you're understanding what I'm saying, then I'm more likely for us to try to continue this conversation forward and move things forward because you're listening. You're not trying to tell me how I feel. Sometimes it's just listening. I think empathy brings that in. I think understanding that there are things out there that we as white individuals will never completely understand. And we just have to accept that that's the way life is and that we need to be a part of fixing those things, that they're not made up, they're not minor, that they're real. And that they're out there just because we don't experience doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And then from the profession standpoint, I just think it just needs to be a willingness to try to help each other, whatever it might be. So just above and beyond like what's going on today, like just help other advisors do well. And if we're all trying to help each other, then naturally we're going to have the collaboration that we need because, oh, I have a family that is here in Indy that is a black family and they would prefer to work with a black advisor because that advisor is going to understand where they're coming from. Rather than being upset, let me call Emlyn up and say, Hey, I've got a family that needs help. You would be a great fit for them. And just collab, like helping each other that way. So I'm helping that family. I'm helping you. They get a good advisor. Your business is growing. We're all getting better. And then our relationships, our bonds get tighter. And I think those things happen as our bonds get tighter as advisors and individuals, then like our movement moves forward stronger as well. So that was just a bunch of rambling. I don't know, like, I don't know if it came across what I really wanted to say, but I think it just all comes back to be willing to help and put other people first, whatever that might be. And if everybody's doing that, then good things will come from it. And then we'll have compounding improvements going forward. Love it. And it made sense. I followed you perfectly. So it made sense. I know how that feels to say something. I'm like, I don't know if this is making sense. It made perfect sense. Jason, anything from you? 
I was listening and I think that I'll just take industry specific stuff and sat and breathe and sleep. But um, this industry, I've been in it for, uh, you know, roughly half my life. And it's kind of what I, the tech guy can't. <laughs> I think that it goes without saying that there's we have a long ways to go to get better representation of all minorities and women in financial services. Like it may be one of the most lopsided industries in America in terms of just old white men is who dominates. And I would challenge a lot of people, I would say, in our media. I saw today they had the candidates for the Wealthies Award from wealthmanagement.com, which was about 99% white men. That's wrong. Got to get better. Like, that's not acceptable. We also just need to have articles where they don't call on Sonia to just talk about diversity and inclusion or, you know, call on Emma to talk about, you know, diversity and inclusion. Like, why don't we call on somebody to be part of an article to talk about financial planning? So, like, there's just a lot of things like that that have to happen there. I think companies, especially the bigger companies that have a lot of employees, I would put myself in this camp. I have 150 employees. And if I'm being transparent, you know, I've probably got under 10% black people. Right. I mean, that's not acceptable. We're maybe 40% women and maybe 40, 50%, you know, minorities in total. And that's considered like radical in this industry, you know, and that's really embarrassing. So all of those companies are out there hiring and building teams. Let's do a heck of a lot better job of our hiring practices. I think we can create a much more inclusive work environment. These will set like better standards than for young people. They'll realize like, hey, I've got a lot of opportunity. Emily, one thing I love about your podcast is you bring successful people of color onto your show, not from our industry, like these are just, you know, people, they could be doctors, lawyers, you know, business people. We just need a whole lot more of that, right? Like just sort of, I think, you know, any of us that have that ability, if this is me speaking to other allies, right? Other white people, what can we all do? Like, let's help that, right? Instead of hinder it. Um, unfortunately, I would have to guess if I looked at like the hundred largest employers, you know, in our industry, they're probably going to be terrible representations of what we want the future to look like. You know, so everybody that's part of those big companies, I hope they hold themselves accountable on a going forward basis. So those are just some of the things. I mean, again, we could go a long ways into this industry because it's got a rich history of not just having bad representation in terms of our employees, how we treat people, salaries, promotions, like all those things are, are really bad. We also do a terrible job of serving people that are diverse. Like almost everything that I was ever taught when I got in this business was about serving rich people. And the more successful you got, raise your minimum, raise your minimum, raise your minimum, right? You know, we have a pretty obvious wealth disparity in this country. And as an industry, we have to be more inclusive to our clients because we're never going to solve the wealth gap if we don't give access to proper financial planning, investment advice, you know, basic financial education to everybody. And that includes doing a much better job of serving people of color. And I'd say everybody, actually. Like It's like this idea that this industry exists to largely just serve white people that have a lot of money isn't talked about a lot. But if you look at the client base, that's reality. And it's, you know, I think, long, long overdue. So those are at least uh, 50 years worth of hard work that we all have to be pretty committed to, to really unwind, you know, centuries of wrongdoings. Yeah, you guys are killing those answers. <laughs> tough, tough. There you go, Sonia. They set the stage. <laughs> wow, Jason. Those are great answers, by the way, fellas. Thank you so That's all. a lot. I see how I can add to that without doing a lot of repeating these good answers that have already been said. I think partly we have to acknowledge that our industry has serious issues, like from 
the inception of the industry to now, I mean, Wall Street, what we think of as our like kind of, I don't know, North Star in the investment industry, there was a slave trade market right there on Wall Street. Slaves built the wall that Wall Street is named after. Our industry was built on the legacy of slavery and wealth disparity. So it's built in. And so it's going to be really hard to unpack all of that. But, you know, that's what we're here doing, right? But there's still so much of that legacy in everything we do, everything that Jason just mentioned. He touched on a lot of the areas. And I think one of the things that I've been thinking about lately, and I haven't quite articulated it very well yet, is that we also in our industry try to separate like thoughts and feelings from facts and numbers and dollars. And those things are not necessarily like you can't take them apart. And so I think about the woman, the woman from Central Park, who was like threatening to call the police on the very nice bird watching black man. And she worked in our industry, right? She worked a large mutual fund company who fired her after seeing that. But do you think she left her racism in Central Park? You think she left it at her house? No, she brings that to work in her like hiring decisions and her asset allocation decisions. And so we have a lot of introspection to do as an industry. And when we see things like that, we need to move swiftly and root them out. So that's kind of like the the negative perspective, but the positive things we can do that everybody can do is amplify voices of underrepresented folks and shout out to Jason and the Altruist podcasts are so good at that. I see you. I see you putting uh, people of color and women. And I mean, I see so many of these lists, like the wealthiest list this morning. I was disappointed to see it was not very diverse, but I do see some folks really taking action and elevating and advocating for and amplifying the voices of underrepresented folks. So I think that's really important and something that everybody can do. More listening, like we talked about. And intentionally, I think Justin kind of touched on this, intentionally building a better, more diverse network. So when you're talking about more listening, like who are you listening to, right? Make sure you're listening to people of color make sure you're listening to women, make sure you're listening to LGBTQ folks. And if you can be listening to folks who have intersecting identities of more than one underrepresented group, even better. Once you've been listening, start building relationships, business relationships, friendships, collegial relationships, because when it comes time to make that higher, then you have a better network to ask, right? And if we do this at an individual level, so if everybody in a company does this at an individual level, say you've got 100 people in the company, Everybody's working to better expand their own network. You have this huge resource for finding a more diverse pool of candidates. One of the most common questions that I hear is, well, how do I find diverse candidates? Everybody I'm seeing is white men. I'm like, well, look at your network, right? If you're only going to hire people who you golf with and their sons, you're probably going to get mostly white men. And I would guess, Jason... I don't want to speak for you. I I would wonder if your company is really diverse compared to most in financial services. And I wonder if you've been able to see as it grows, if you've been able to see like the network effect of having a small set of diverse employees help you to grow that. Totally. I I think most companies will say their best hires are referrals from their existing team, right? So if your existing team, you know, birds of a feather flock together, you're not going to, if you have all white people, you're going to have a lot of white referrals, you know. But I do think like you made a great point, Justin kind of talked about this earlier, 
And think about the way your brand looks, you know, I mean, if you're a company and you're holding yourself out and all your images, right, from the PowerPoints down to, you know, your videos that you show, um, you're going to attract, if your goal is to have a more diverse workforce, then make them want to be part of what you're building, you know, like do something that matters. And again, it's especially difficult, we're a fintech company. So imagine it's not easiest thing in the world to find, for example, black people or women that are engineers, as an example. But you'd be shocked how if you put out that energy that is appealing to those people and they feel like they really belong to be part of something really special. It's amazing how many people of color, how many women, how many, you know, people of other underrepresented ethnicities are really on fire about what you're doing. The power, actually, I think, of you know, diverse people, experiences, ideas is one of the biggest assets that any company can ever have. And this is whether you're a two, three, five-person financial practice or you're a big thousand, ten thousand-person custodian or something. I think we'd all be really foolish if we didn't think that we're not better companies when we're diverse companies. Yeah, I think all of you have said great, great things. I appreciate every one of you, and I think about the thing that I said before. As we're talking about this culture, Altruist is building a different culture. And I think with you three and the host of other people that want to see change in this industry, in our country, I think that we're in good hands. I think we have this conversation five to 10 years from now, and we are going to have more black owned firms on lists that you know have over $100 million in assets. We will see the first billion dollar RIA black owned firm because of conversations like this. I believe that the future is bright. I believe we are going to pull together. I believe that we have what it takes to change the complexion of wealth. And I couldn't be more happy to be aligned with people like you three and the host of other people that are not scared, that are moving forward, that are preferring to have progress over perfection. And long as we continue to make those moves forward, we will change the complexion of wealth. I want to thank all of you guys for coming on today. All of you for coming on today, not just guys, Sonia, the rose between the thorns here. So we thank you for that. And I thank all of you for your contribution to our industry. Shout out to FinTwit. Love all you guys on FinTwit. You guys have been, you know, keeping us going and we love what you guys, the feedback that you have. And we're just going to wrap this up here. I think it's a good place for us to end. And I want to thank all of you again. My name is Emlyn Miles Mattingly. This is the Minority Money Podcast, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast, so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here and until next time.